you know, if you if you're a health practitioner, if you're a doctor, yes, of course, you might have a faith <laughs> as, as well as being a doctor, or you might have no faith, but you think, what is the best thing for my patient in terms of their health? And if this is the best thing in terms of their health, you say, we need to do this. So if pupils need to un- need to know something to understand better, we, we should have confidence as educators. Um, our job is to help children to understand. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today I'm talking to Kate Christopher, a secondary RE teacher, advisor, published author and editor for the Reforming RE blog. Welcome, Kate. Hi there. How are you doing? You okay? I'm very well, thanks. How is the this pandemic period treating you now? I mean, weirdly, I'm finding the second lockdown sort of less stressful in a way. I don't know why, because I've still got two kids at home and uh, students I teach. But, you know, teachers are amazing. We are really, really glue. And I'm seeing this now so clearly. Yeah. In fact, the way that people have come together. Yeah. You know, and I think the second lockdown has really highlighted that sense of togetherness. Yeah, That's yeah, definitely yeah. something I feel. Um, super. Okay. Well, well, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your role and how you became involved with Reforming RE? Absolutely. Um, so first of all, thanks so much for having me on the podcast and on behalf of Reforming RE2, uh, we're just so pleased to tell your listeners about what we're doing. And it's lovely to be here with you. Um, so I'm an advisor and a part-time teacher. Um, I've known Mark Chater uh, for many years. He's the editor of the Reforming RE book. Um, I've, as I said, I've known Mark for many years. Um, for example, his his own work, his 2013 book, for example, Does Religious Education Have a Future? I found that really helpful when I was finishing my PhD. Mark's always been a bit of an inspiration for me. So I was just delighted when he asked me to, first of all, to write for the Reforming RE book. And now he has brought Matthew and myself together with him to produce this blog series, which I'm enjoying immensely. Um, the three of us, Mark, Matt and myself, we share a common vision, which is a more contextual, nuanced and critical religion and worldviews for the 21st century. You know, I find it fascinating. I thought the book was excellent. And, yeah, and the really blog, excellent. The blog is full of really juicy ideas and things to, to discuss and take back to yeah. school. Um, so, and you mentioned Mark inspired. Have, have there been any other people or books or things that have inspired you along the way for, for your journey? I mean, so many. Um, Mark Mark is one of my inspirations, uh, but that's the end of the nice things I'm going to say about him because it will just embarrass him. <laughs> um, as I said, um, I, I finished my PhD and that's in philosophy of education. Um, I, in my work, I apply philosophy of education to the subject of RE or religion and worldviews. And so over the years of reading a lot of philosophy, um, there's some really, really radical ideas that have blown my brain apart. I think philosophy can seem quite dry from the outside. And I suppose it is fairly dry at times, but sometimes you come across these radical ideas in philosophy, which are just amazing, um, sort of emperor's new clothes ideas. So I'm thinking particularly of a book by uh, a philosopher of education called Porrick Hogan. He teaches in Ireland, who argues that Western education has not really permitted free thought since Plato and not at all under the church. Um, so I do remember that being a big moment for me. Like I said, a sort of emperor's new clothes moment. Um, I've also read a lot of critical race theory, been inspired by a lot of those writers. They're sociologists, mostly um, writers such as David Gilburn, who's in Britain. Um, and their writing shows me what a more just education system could look like. 
Um, and one book that particularly made me sit up in this tradition is called it's called The Racial Contract by Charles Mills. Um, he's actually a philosopher, uh, and he positions himself within the critical race theory tradition. And he actually shows in his book a sort of history of basically white supremacy. He, he, he makes the seemingly inexplicable explicable. He takes you through the history of the various invasions, the treaties, and often the broken treaties, how this global view was created. Um, and again, that book just opened my eyes to so many things, partly just as a human who lives in the world, I now have a better understanding, but particularly as an educator. His book showed me that these things are explicable and therefore, really, they can be taught. You know, I love that. And, 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 I, and I'd love to find out about the books that, that uh, people have been inspired by along the way. Yeah. Um, partly for selfish reasons, because it creates a reading list that I can go away and, and cram. But, but also, you know, the, I mean, the topic itself, I think uh, in school and school improvement, certainly in some of the schools I've worked with where philosophy for children has been introduced yes. at primary and has been integrated into the curriculum some of the powerful impact yeah. on thinking and Absolutely. the kind of engagement uh, and, the, and the topics that you're able to, to introduce. Uh, uh, I think that it really makes a difference. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, th- I think, I think there's, there's definitely some things I want to find out a bit more about and, and read more about it from what you suggested. Well, okay, well, what about, what do you see as the key issues then for developing effective RE teaching? Because that's really what we're, we're talking yeah. about today, isn't it? Um, I think we as a community need a shared vision which I think is really just a fancy way of saying we need to agree on what we're doing. I think I think a consensus is growing around the idea of a critical, contextual and nuanced understanding of worldviews. I think ideas are coming into focus, although I think the periods of lack of clarity are probably part of this journey. So, for example, the thinking behind worldviews itself, that's gathering pace I think the idea of taking a disciplinary approach to the curriculum, like looking through different disciplinary lenses, is also gaining head of steam. And I don't think there's any doubt now across the profession, not just within RE, that we need coherent curriculum design. That's a, that's a sort of basic. Yeah. Um, I mean, the subject is going through very significant change. It's going through identity change. And that is both exciting and scary for you know everyone involved. And neither of those responses are better or worse than the other they're both totally valid normal responses they're both human responses Mm. and you know one person might be excited and scared at the same time I think we are going through change as a community and that does raise emotional issues as well as um, significant sort of intellectual challenges Um, I think what's the big battle like on the coming around the corner or on the horizon the particular well I maybe shouldn't use the word battle it's too combative let's say the big challenge in the immediate horizon, I think, will be the reduced authority of SACRES over the curriculum uh, to be replaced by some sort of national body. I think that's going to be a moment of change, which some will really regret and feel very, they will feel very bitterly about it. And some will be really excited about it. And the challenges for us to get through that period of change, you know, still as a community, still caring for each other, even though some of us will be really upset and some of us will be really happy. Mm. However, I think this change does have to come because on the other side of the change, we do have to have a curriculum designed by religious educators. Um, and in my view, they should be a mixture of those with an expertise in the particular worldview traditions and those with an expertise in, uh, you know, curriculum design itself, some, something like that. Mm. And, and now, 
I th- you know, it was timely before, but you know, mid-pandemic or coming, you know, hopefully around the corner to to the the end, dare I say, of of a situation where we've really had to rethink and recalibrate. It feels like this is perfect timing. Mm. It re- it really does. And, and you mentioned about the coherence of the curriculum. I, you know, that just feels like the the next step. Yeah. Oh, um, so, so how could that be created? How could we weave the the history that you've mentioned, the the context, the diversity? Yes, challenging, but how do we do it in authentic, in an authentic and meaningful way? Um, I think we need to have a clear purpose as a community. We all need to be going in the same direction, or we'll continue to do what we already do, which is do lots of different things that <laughs> don't necessarily talk to each other. And it's going to take a lot of work. Going to take a lot of elbow grease, no doubt. If you think about it, the information itself that we we will use to furnish a, a contextual, diverse and critical curriculum, that information is readily available. I mean, it's been readily available for decades, if not centuries. Mm. Um, it's the desire to use the information to create a such a curriculum. That's the first step. And then we need the time to make it. I think there might, I think I'm beginning to feel that there are many teachers out there who do want to work towards this goal, but they don't quite know where to start. There are some examples out there, two particularly spring to mind. The Balanced RE curriculum um, developed by Catherine Wright and Gillian Georgiou in uh, Norfolk. Mm -hmm. Um, that's That's a good practical example of disciplinary thinking in primary school. And in fact, my colleague Matthew, who co-edits the blog series with me has actually implemented it into his school maybe something that something for your schools to look at carl if they're interested in this Um, and secondly there's the big ideas project sort of overseen by barbara winterskill and and others in the field with her that's another good practical example of such a curriculum a critical diverse and contextual curriculum i think we do need a national effort we do need to pull together and have some sort of national guidance or leadership but at the moment, it feels to me, as a teacher, as well as an advisor, that at the moment, the place for all this to happen is maybe at the grassroots. Maybe now the conversations and the sort of building of a shared language and arriving at a shared understanding through these sometimes very informal conversations maybe is is, to, is the right place to be. And of course, the grassroots conversations are often enabled by bodies in the field, such as Cullum St. Gabriel's, Ariac and Ulray. I think change just takes time. And even though we might be able to see the end result, the steps to actually get there are uncertain. When I work with teachers, I do a fair amount of teacher training. When I when I work with teachers, I suggest they take one topic that they'll probably always teach, uh, you know, something pretty standard in their curriculum, like the Hajj or baptism or something. And they slowly add context and texture to those pieces of content bit by bit. I suggest they build up to a progression, a coherent progression curriculum over time. But teachers, they also need CPD. They also need a time and a space to actually sit down and look at stuff and play around with stuff. That That's the time and a space that has to be taken or given deliberately. They can't do it while they're teaching and they can't do it while they're planning and marking. It's a different thing. And But through that time and space, like, sort of taken out of their regular day for playing, for being confused, for being creative, for being collaborative, for being innovative. Through that, they build confidence and they build clarity. So it's absolutely essential. I mean, my experience of training teachers, 
I show them, you know, some examples of what we're talking about. And they're often fairly rudimentary examples that haven't been through several years of teaching and become honed in that way that, that something is once you've taught it a few times. They have a play around with it. They ask questions. They go, I don't know what this is all about. They go, how does this work for EAL? They share ideas. They collaborate. And what they come up with is always so, I'm always so impressed and sort of stunned by the shared creativity of teachers when they have time to get together and play around with stuff. So although it's very uncertain living through change, I do think at the moment the place to be is probably at the grassroots level as we're kind of building our capacity as a group. Just just one thought as you're uh, explaining that and, and talking about at the curriculum itself, tell me about knowledge and, and the, the current climate. How has that helped or... What am I trying to say? I say, what what's the role of knowledge in this yeah. curriculum, and how might that be different to what's gone before? I think it, I think the current climate is is really helpful um, to RE, and isn't that strange? I, I know what you mean as you phrase that question. Has it helped? As if it, as if somehow there's another reality where RE knowledge in RE or religion and worldviews is somehow different to other subjects. Mm-hmm. I think we've got ourselves in a bit of a t- tangle about this. I think if we could just see clearly that we teach information like any other subject and that information is contested and that information gets complex and like all teachers, we have to decide what what we're going to teach at this point in this year group or, you know, for this scheme of work. And we know that it just goes on and on and on and on and on and links up and some other group wouldn't even agree with that anyway. I think actually the prevailing thoughts about knowledge are very helpful. The sort of Hersheyan um, way of seeing knowledge as in this is a list of stuff you need to know to be culturally literate. I know that's got its detractors, but that's an acknowledgement there that there is a sort of public standard of knowledge that you pretty much do need to know. Mm. Um, and, and, I, and I'm not saying that the detractors are in any way wrong, but there's another way of seeing knowledge in the air at the moment, which is Michael Young's. Well, actually, it's an earlier thesis, not necessarily applied to now, but it's being reshaped for now. The idea of powerful knowledge, the idea that sometimes a critical view can unlock an understanding, or maybe not even a critical view, a historical view, say, can unlock an understanding that's very empowering, uh, uh, you know, for children and teenagers and young adults. So actually, I think the knowledge agenda, if you want to call it that, is helping RE at the moment in us really being forced to re shape our thoughts about knowledge and of course as it's very much embedded in the new Ofsted framework that's really forcing people to think about their planning how do we produce a coherent uh, knowledge curriculum a progression curriculum yeah I think that empowers teachers I think, I think so it, too I think yeah. it, it does it liberates and, and and the number of teachers who, who say you know I love doing I love teaching this um, um, even if at first it appears like it's a challenge or, or a different way of thinking um, do, do we have any examples of successful practice then or, or practitioners that, that you can think of? I mean, it's so amazing to work with teachers because I, all the time I see these creative and innovative approaches. I'm thinking particularly of my friend up in Stockton. Uh, she's a, she's called Kirsten Weber. She's the RE advisor up in Stockton. And she's a really good example of someone who's just gone about doing really what I suggested earlier in our conversation, just taking topics that you know you will teach that are not going to go away and gradually adding context and sort of maybe re, re, reordering them over time so they fit into a more coherently planned correct pro- progression curriculum. Now, Kirsten particularly produced, uh, worked on the curriculum with 
primary teachers with her primary schools. In her schools, I mean, I was quite surprised when she told me this, but in her schools, they do Christmas and Easter, every Christmas and every Easter in every year group in every school. And so she's obviously, you know, decided to pick her battles. That's not going to change. So she's basically turned the, the obligatory Christmas and Easter into a progression curriculum. And it builds up every year. Every year group encounters Christmas, say, or Easter in a way that's age appropriate for them. But actually, it builds up to allow increasingly sophisticated and connected understanding. So uh, in year one, let's take the Christmas example. So in year one, the children, um, they look at the idea of Jesus as a present. They make a little present box. They use words like present and gift. They talk about Jesus being seen as a gift to humanity. They use the word special. Now, these are all obviously age appropriate words for year one. I mean, ultimately, though, the children are learning about the doctrine of the incarnation, but they wouldn't necessarily use the word incarnation in year one. But the the seeds are sown in that uh, in that in the year one lesson. The seeds are sown for that sort of thinking that will build over time. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. In year three, they look at the pre-Christian traditions of Europe. So the evergreen tree, the candles, the Yule logs, what they symbolise, and then they learn about um, how the Christians who came to Europe and how they sort of wove this incredible story into what already existed and they ask how much about Christmas is Christian and that's a lovely open question the children can discuss one one of them might say of course it's Christian the main story is about you know the birth of Jesus it's the incarnation and others might argue that there's cultural and historical elements too and again that's a great question for year three pupils to attack Mm. and by the time they get to year six they're learning different Uh, accounts of the nativity they look at the different nativity accounts in luke and john's gospels and they compare the differences and they get a bit of background as to john and luke's particular concerns and they can see why the nativity accounts differ which again is an absolutely right level of challenge for year six pupils and it's um comparable to the level of challenge they're encountering in their english and their history for example and it really gives them something to get their teeth into um so I think, yeah, my friend Kirsten's curriculum is a really good example because, first of all, she created it over time. Mm-hmm. It's so overwhelming to think about starting an entire new curriculum, taking on all these new thoughts about knowledge and progression. But she just did it over time and she took, a, took topics that weren't going anywhere because that's another thing teachers hate, isn't it? Planning something and then two years later, it's totally redundant. So she took topics that aren't going to change, but gradually reordered them and increase the level of challenge. And it's just a really exciting um, scheme of work that she's ended up with. What What about uh, if there are teachers thinking, well, I want to engage with, with this and, and, and this practice sounds great and I'm, I'm excited by it. But what, what would you say if anyone is feeling nervous or apprehensive about, about anything that might be viewed as controversial? I mean, that is the, that's the sort of deep question, isn't it, that is constantly raised Mm. and I think that comes from a place of respect and sort of a a sense of the wider community that when we are teaching about people's beliefs and different cultural practices we are talking about people so I think those fears come from a place as I said of respect Mm -hmm. it comes from a good place however I suppose the, the way I've kind of stepped around these issues in my own career is to remember remember that I am an educator 
It's not to say an educator might not have a faith, but they are in a professional role as an educator. So what what helps educationally? You know, if you if you're a health practitioner, if you're a doctor, yes, of course you might have a faith <laughs> as as well as being a doctor, or you might have no faith, but you think what is the best thing for my patient in terms of their health? And if this is the best thing in terms of their health, you say we need to do this. So if pupils need to un- need to know something to understand better, we we should have confidence as educators. Um, our job is to help children to understand. However, I do think there are times when you might avoid certain topics uh, just with a particular class because you don't want them all upset. An upset class can't learn. I think you could still stick to the principle of education and still make decisions from time to time that you might actually avoid or reframe a topic if it's just going to cause problems that aren't going to help anyone understand or aren't going to help anyone learn. Yeah. Yeah. And and I suppose that's when the, the coherence um, is, uh, is, is helpful. And also the collaboration is helpful because of course that, you know, if you're doing it in isolation, you may, may well feel, you know, cautious about things, which actually um, there's evidence of really strong practice, you know, going on locally, nationally, or, Mm. or, you know, or or elsewhere. Mm. Super. Okay. Well, that's really, uh, it's really helpful, and it's really helpful to understand that the, almost the where we are. But what's next for you and and for religion and worldviews? I mean, I don't know what's next for religion and worldviews, but I know what I hope is next <laughs> is to like flourish into a twenty first century curriculum. In terms of for myself, I'm just going to keep doing this. Um, I am totally on a mission, um, and I tell you what, it's amazing to work with all the teachers who are contributing to reforming RE. And, and if any of the teachers in your area want to get involved, we absolutely welcome them. Um, it's incredible to hear what other teachers are working on. As I was saying earlier, that it seems to all be happening at the grassroots at the moment. And it's just wonderful to hear what's going on in different classrooms and in different areas. I suppose the downside of that is it's happening in a very fragmented way and teachers can feel really isolated. Um, in terms of my own work, I'm just going to keep going, trying to connect people, welcome them into the conversation, have time to hear their ideas and see what they're doing. My own work is completely focused on curriculum design um, from my own teaching, of course, developing my own curriculum and working with teachers. Um, as an advisor, I'm working on some other curriculum projects, got um, some funding where we are soon a colleague who teaches at Canterbury Christchurch University and I, we're about to present a set of CPT workshops to teachers on the idea of teaching Islam as a worldview. So that's really exciting. And I'm just going to do this, you know, I'm just going to do this for the rest of my career. That That's where I'm going to try to exemplify through practical teaching, teachable examples, what a worldviews curriculum looks like and to obviously work with teachers in the process. Watch this space. That's fantastic. It really is. Um, so, so how could people find out more uh, or reach out to you if they want to learn more about it? Yes, and I hope I hope listeners will. I hope they'll visit the blog series. And also, if you want to blog, please, please feel very welcome. So the first best place to go is to Reforming RE, the blog series. Um, all our Twitter handles are there. You can make contact through the, the blog site. Uh, as I said, if, if any of the listeners would like to blog or are interested in, in a conversation about how you go about that, please please feel very, very welcome to join in the conversation. We would love to hear from you. We are all teachers. And those of us who are advisors uh, and not teachers anymore are still very, very focused on the classroom. Um, 
we're a very eclectic bunch of people in that we don't do things the same way. We're not certainly looking for one type of person. We're just really excited about a vision of what our subject can be. We think it's got genuine educational value um, for the next millennia. So please do feel welcome to join in the conversation. That's that's wonderful. And the timing is perfect. I, I can't, you know, I think there's such a need for this conversation right now. Well, Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with our listeners for all the work that you're doing to help further our collective professional development. Uh, you know, that's that's you know a real passion for me to really try to collect some of the ideas that are going to make a difference to to the whole profession. And I think it makes a difference to to all of us as teachers and school leaders, and ultimately makes a difference to our children. So thanks so much. Thank you so much, Carl. <laughs>